When the news had come out about uh, Philip's death, <clears throat> Pastor Philip's death over at Sylvania, that I had asked several of the local pastors, I'd invited them with our kind of a lead pastors gathering we try to do a few times a year. Um, I invited them and asked them kind of like, hey, we probably ought to have kind of an emergency meeting. Let's gather together and look each other in the eye and make sure we're okay and, and talk about how we, how we engage with as a community, but even more so in our own lives, how we engage with these challenges. And, and, uh, and in that conversation, um, one of the pastors, I believe it was Joe Canal over at Tyler Christian Fellowship, um, talked to us a little bit about um, the, the tough season of life he had gone through and how he felt like he had kind of barely made it through. And the way he kind of summarized that was he said that he realized he had not um, begun digging a well until he was thirsty. And, and the recognition of that as a pattern for us as human beings is that, is that when we don't put into place the things that, that are important, the things that matter most, even when we're not in a crisis, that's, that's going to be a problem. Are we investing in the kind of church and in the kind of family and in the kind of marriages and in the kind of friendships um, that, that when the day comes when we are in a place to struggle, that we are, are not just starting to dig a well? We're going to read today about uh, a concept like that as the Jewish people realize on the day of battle that they have a really big problem. In fact, they have a series of problems. And, and the day of battle is not the time to realize that. And we're going to see that. Um, talking to, to Rod this morning about um, the, this uh, revival that's been going on out at Brook Hill over the last few weeks um, and months, and just seeing dozens of kids um, put their faith in Christ and be baptized, and, and what, a, what a neat picture that is. And, and talking this morning about how it feels like, you know, like, wow, this happened suddenly. But, but I, think, I think like most things, uh, most overnight successes take decades of work. Um, and I think it's kind of like that. I think if, if out at Brookhill, if they had decided this semester to go, you know, we ought to start talking about Jesus around here. That I, I don't know. I mean, I'm not taking God out of that. God can do what he wants to do. But, but I, I think the truth is they have been investing and, and, and tending the soil and creating the right type of atmosphere where um, the spirit moved in such a way and the kids responded and, and are responding. It's, it's amazing to watch. Um, so let's go back a little bit and set the context for where we are in 1 Samuel and, uh, and see how kind of we got to where we are um, here in 1 Samuel chapter 13. So in 1 Samuel chapter 4, if you go way back to 1 Samuel chapter 4, we read about how years ago the Philistines had defeated Israel in a very serious, serious battle in which they destroyed the tabernacle, in which they stole the Ark of the Covenant, and by the end of the battle the priest Eli was dead. Now before long the Ark had been returned to Israel, um, if you'll remember, after taking a tour of destruction through the cities of Philistia. This is the, the era of the golden rats and the golden tumors, if you remember. So the Philistines, again, are this warlike uh, series of cities, this warlike people group who live near on the coast um, of Israel. And, uh, and they're kind of the bad guys of the Old Testament. There's plenty of bad guys of the Old Testament, but they come up often enough that if you're looking for one, that every time you see them, you can count on this is bad, like there should be bad guy background music for the Philistines. It's kind of like the Pharisees in the New Testament and the Philistines in the Old Testament, right? I mean, you just know like this is going to go badly when they, run, when they show up. 
So, so about 20 years after that event, after um, the, the Philistines had utterly defeated Israel, um, the ark was returned, and 20 years later, Samuel, now um, a young priest, called the people of Israel together to gather to repent and to sacrifice to Yahweh. The Philistines decided to take this as an opportunity. Don't know why. Don't know if they were threatened by the people of Israel gathering together. They were typically this divided out series of 12 tribes that didn't get along with each other very well. And, and the, the judges that had been pretty much what they did, they were most often at war with each other or other people. And so maybe the Philistines just didn't like this idea of a strong leader like Samuel gathering the people together to worship the Lord. Or maybe they just thought, oh, they're all together. We'll go fight them now because this is the Philistines and they don't need a reason to go fight you. There's just, they just need a place to come fight you. And so the people of Israel were together, so they were going to come fight. For one reason or another, they decided to attack. We read about this in 1 Samuel chapter 7. Here's how it goes. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. Samuel cried out to the Lord of Israel, for Israel, and the Lord answered him. And as Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion. And they were defeated before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below Bethkar. So here you have this defeat, humiliating defeat with Samuel and God and thunder just a few years back from where we are. Now, maybe it may have been several decades back, but from where we are in 1 Samuel 13, we really don't know. The timeline is unclear here. But this probably really, really set the Philistines on their heels, don't you think? I mean, it kind of tossed them on their rear ends. They had been defeated, humiliated. They had been the one to pick the fight. And then through a series of miracles, they had been utterly defeated. And this, this uh, power vacuum created by the Philistines being set on their heels may be why you have a guy like Nahash the snake gathering up the Amorites to come and invade this area. Because he's like, hey, the Philistines, who are the dangerous people over there, they just got smacked. Maybe I could go in and take over. So he faces Saul in Saul's very first test. And um, with God's help, the people of Israel's defeat, the Ammonites. Um, we see that back in chapter 11. Now, keep in mind, though, these are the Philistines. They're down, but they're not out. You can't keep the Philistines out of a fight forever. They're going to show back up. This is what they live for. And so they do. Apparently, they have rebuilt over these last years, however long it's been. And they're back on top of the power structure in the region. If you're a student of history, you're going, well, where are the Assyrians or the Egyptians or these other great uh, world powers at the time? Well, they didn't really mess that much with this area. This is not their problem. They're too busy worrying about each other um, to worry about what's going on here in Israel. But the Philistines seem to have taken back the leadership here. They are now the power structure again. But there's a problem. Israel now has a king. And Israel has apparently decided to declare themselves independent of the Philistine rule. Um, they have a king, and that king has faced his first test, Nahash the snake, and he has defeated him. And Israel is feeling pretty good about things, but his second big test is going to be Israel's ancient enemy, the Philistines. So Saul's son takes out one of the garrisons of the Philistines, and we'll unpack that next week, either the same event or a very similar event, depending on who you ask. And the word goes out for the Hebrews to hear and gather at Gilgal. 
But before they can gather, the Philistines march right into Israel, into the middle of Israel, and encamp in their own backyard, right there in the middle of them with a massive army. The people of Israel are outnumbered, they've been outflanked, they've been outmaneuvered, but the author wants you to know that it's even worse than you think. So pick up, if you will, with me in 1 Samuel chapter 13, starting in verse 19. Now, there was no blacksmith to be found throughout the land of Israel. For the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make themselves swords or spears. But every one of the Philistines went down to the, every one of the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen his plowshare, his mattock, his axe, or his sickle. So 15 years ago, about 15, 16, 17 years ago, about, um, I had, had been a, a part of creating a ministry out at Pine Cove called The Forge. Um, the Forge is this is eight months of preparing um, young men and women to be leaders in ministry, to follow Christ in such a way that they create followers of Christ. That's the picture. And so this idea would be that, that after in eight months of training, theology training, identity training, ministry training, that they would be that much more prepared. And I got to be a part of creating that. And so I was going to be the first keynote speaker um, at their first graduation. And, and so I went out by myself with my Blackberry, um, because that's how long ago this was, and I dug into Scripture to figure out what passage really captures this. And, and so I'm searching, of course, with a program named The Forge, I'm searching blacksmiths in the Bible. And I find this passage right here in 1 Samuel chapter 13. And, and dug into it, and I found these few verses and for whatever reason, the Holy Spirit illuminated this. He set my imagination into flame. And my mindset about ministry has never recovered after reading these few verses. And I want to explain why. Apparently, this was the scene. At some point, it came time to round up an army to throw off the yoke of the Philistines. So the cry would have gone out, men of valor, grab your weapons, meet us at Gilgal. Now think about how many millions of times probably this has happened throughout human history. Where, where Paul Revere rides down the streets saying, the British are coming. Right? Every minute, men, go grab your musket and meet at the town square. This happened thousands of years ago with the Greeks. It happened before then with the Egyptians when they probably first faced the Philistines. Every time throughout history, every few years, maybe every year somewhere in the world, this cry rallies again. Men of valor, grab your weapons and meet us here. Like this, this is not a new thing. And in this case, the men, when they show up, they show up with farm implements. Well, that's a problem. Dangerous, sure, but not very efficient for killing. When you show up with a farm implement, when you come to a battle with a farm tool, you're in trouble, right? The old knife to a gunfight problem. You show up to battle with your hoe, great for a painting, um, great for working in the field, right? But not so good for fighting an enemy. But the men showed up with their farm implements. And by the way, the Hebrew here is not clear. The ESV does us a favor and puts in a bunch of different farm, possible farm implements, the kind of scary, dangerous ones you would expect. But really, it's hard to tell. It's really hard to tell in the Hebrew. They're, but what is clear is they're not weapons, they're farm implements. Um, even, even the word for axe that's used here is not an axe like we picture. Listen, we're East Texans. When we think of axe, we think axe, right? 
we got something, we got to cut down a pine tree. You're going to have to be swinging this thing, and you're going to be swinging it for a while. It better be razor sharp and heavy, right? They did, this is Israel. Those of you who have been there, lots of big pine trees to cut down? None, right? It's the, their idea of an axe, we wouldn't even call a hatchet. It's more, like a, it's more like a tiling tool. I mean, it barely counts for us. We wouldn't even think of it as, like it's meant for chipping some strips of wood so that you can then either start a fire or apparently build a boat. Um, we've talked about that before. So, so you show up, these guys show up, and they've, they've got a problem. You imagine being the commander, and you're like, okay, everyone shows up to fight, and everyone shows up with a hoe or an axe, a hand axe, and you go, okay, we have a problem, but it's okay. Listen, you just get up in front of everybody, and you go, do we have a doctor in the house? No, I'm not, not, although they're probably going to need those, right? That's not the question. It is, is there a blacksmith in the house? Because, see, here's the cool thing. This is not that different from this. It's a little different, but the, it's got a stick. It's got some metal at the top. If we just have someone who can take this metal, it's about the same amount of metal. We can take this metal and turn it into something like this. We're good, right? We just need to straighten it out, bend it, shape it, sharpen it, and we're in good shape. And that's where the people of Israel realize they have a much, much bigger problem. It isn't just that they have no weapons. And this is what sparked my imagination. Is the idea not just that they don't have weapons, but that they don't have any blacksmiths. Another one that I love, so knowing how significant this passage was to me, it references plowshares. And the idea of turning a plowshare into a sword and so a few years ago, knowing how significant this passage is to my mindset for ministry, Paul, um, out of his love for me, went out and found, I kid you not, on this property, we have several old homesteads on this property, and he found some plowshares. Could you bring those up for me, Paul? Thank you, sir. This is a plowshare. So people were showing up on the day of battle with one of these in their hands. Right? Time to show up for battle. I came up with my plowshare. And they go, okay, that's all right. All we've got to do is find a blacksmith who, like Paul, is able to turn a plowshare into a sword, which is what he did for me. And you go, okay, all we need is a blacksmith to take this and make this. And the people of Israel realize they don't have any blacksmiths. To realize you have no weapons is pretty defeating. To realize you have no blacksmiths is hopeless. This is not something that you can just recover from easily. We just need someone to heat, hammer, and mold this metal into a different shape. It's not that bad. It's not hopeless. But do you see the passage? Verse 19, there, were, there was no blacksmith to be found throughout all the land of Israel. Now it feels hopeless. What a tragic blow. How did they let this happen? No one in all of Israel has the understanding or skill to turn a plowshare into a sword, by the way, or back again. We'll talk about that before we're done. At that time, reading that passage, sitting out there alone with God and my Blackberry, realizing that my calling and part of my calling was not merely to make weapons, but to make blacksmiths. This is what I want to do. When Terry Cooper, years ago, the phrase used by Terry Cooper, when he, that when he invited me to come and apply to be the campus pastor at First Baptist Church's South Campus, the phrase that he used that captured my attention was the idea of being, the idea that at, at this church, every member is a minister. Now that sounded like something exciting. That sounded like something that was more like not just making weapons, but making blacksmiths. 
um, not only blacksmithing, but training other people to be blacksmiths. Not just ministering, but equipping ministers. And even training others to equip ministers. That, that gets me excited. So before I get back to wrapping up this package, I want to, this, this passage, I want to unpack it a little more by looking at one of the most important passages in the Bible for churches anywhere. And I think it's the first passage I ever taught from this pulpit as a guest preacher 13, 14 years ago, something like that. Ephesians 4, chapter 10, uh, chapter, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 10, starting in verse 10, he who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers. Let me interrupt that thought. I want you to notice that he gave us as gifts to his local church. So when we, when we look in the other passages like Romans 12 or 1 Corinthians 12, the gift is evangelism. But in Ephesians 4, the gift is evangelists. It may be pastoring. Here, it's the pastors. There, um, there, it's the teaching. Here, it's the teachers that are the gift. In fact, the picture that's created is really fascinating. It's the picture of plunder being shared among soldiers. It's the picture that, that, that Christ has gone into the very gates of hell, and he has kicked open the gates of hell, and he has stormed the prison, and he has defeated his enemy, and he has taken all of these prisoners out of these prisons, and he's brought them back to us and shared them with us as plunder from the enemy of sin and death. This teacher was once, was once a captive of sin. And I've rescued him, and I've brought him here, and now he is my gift to you. He says, this, this, this shepherd, this shepherd, she was once totally, totally under the power of death. And now I have set her free, and I'm bringing her to you and saying, she is now your gift. This shepherd is a gift to you, my church. We share in this great plunder, these gifts that I have gone and, to, and, and rescued from the captors. It's a beautiful picture. It's, it's so amazing. We're supposed to play this vital role. Now, if you will, consider especially for a moment, if you will, just for a second, the way church staff in modern church world play into this. As teachers and shepherds, those who we've kind of set aside whole, their whole lives and said like, okay, you're actually, your career path is even to do this. It's, it's, it's something we want you to spend kind of all of your time or most of your time thinking and doing to one degree or another. All of us have this in our minds. This is our passion. This is our heart. This is who we are. But we're going we're gonna to pay some of you for your time and maybe your training to focus your attention here. Well, what does the church staff play into this? We're supposed to play such a vital role. Here's what it is, though. Verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Now, don't hear me saying that that's the only job, that's the job only of the paid staff, only of the paid Christians, not at all. God calls all of us to continue to grow and learn and mature and get to the place where we started as a lump of metal, but we get to the place where we are blacksmiths. All of us. And so this is, a, this is something we're all called to, to equip one another, the saints, Christ's followers to accomplish the work of the ministry. Our main job is to do the ministry of equipping the saints to do the ministry. This is, this is who we are. Years ago, 
um, uh, I was, uh, when Twitter was kind of a new thing, uh, I thought, man, this is going to be a really cool way to, to communicate with people and challenge people's thinking. Okay, I admit I was completely wrong. But it was, seemed like it at the time, like it might be a positive in the world. Um, and so I was still at that stage tweeting. Even saying that sounds so silly. But I was tweeting, and I was, so I, I tweeted out one day a, a series. I was like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put out a series of, of encouragements to the church to think in terms of what is my ministry? What is the ministry God has called me to? That my name, .com ministries means, what does that web page look like? So I started in the morning and I typed in, what if there were no children's ministers to minister to our children? And I waited a few hours and, what if there were no student ministers to minister to our students? What if there were no worship ministers to lead us to worship? Now, what I was hoping to trigger in people's thoughts was to go, could I do that? Could I lead my family to worship? Could I lead my family in studying God's word? Could I lead my family in praying about the future? Could I lead my family in walking through hard things? Could I be a part of that? What I got was people who thought apparently that I was saying, you ungrateful people, if only you thought about how grateful you should be for these children's ministers, right? So I got all these messages. People would reply and go like, you're right. We should be so grateful. I'm going to reach out right now to Rebecca Rains and tell her how great, like I was, which is great, by the way. That's awesome. That was really beautiful. But the point I was making was, you're not just passive recipients of ministry. You are ministers of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the staff's job is to help equip you to do that, not to do it for you. But we get that broken way of thinking in our heads very easily that we become passive members. We've said for years, if the full, complete extent of your Christian life is an hour and a half to three hours on Sunday morning, then you are not experiencing the Christian life. It's, it's a saturation. It changes who we are. By the way, how long? For how long are we supposed to be equipping the saints for the ministry of the gospel? Well, let's look at verse 13. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith... And of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the statue of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. So we need to keep this up. We need to keep up investing in one another and ministering to one another and discipling one another and training one another up. Everything that our church is about is conveying people from from guest, our stranger to guest, and then conveying them from, from guest to regular, attender, and then, and then from regular attender to member, and then from member to minister, and then ministers begin the ministry of the gospel, and they continue to grow until they're minister makers. That's, that's the whole picture that why we exist. So this is what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to do this until we're all mature, until we kind of have it all together in Christ, until we're unified by the faith, until we no longer act like children. I'm thinking we're going to have to be doing this for a while. Uh, maybe until Jesus comes back. I mean, have you, if you've met any of us, you would think, this isn't coming anytime soon. Everything we do here is meant to convey that. From a lump of metal, a tool, a weapon, fine piece of jewelry, to a journeyman or a journeywoman, to a blacksmith. That's the exact picture we want. The people of Israel had literally failed to do this. Not just metaphorically like we do, but literally. 
No weapons, that's bad. No blacksmiths, that's crushing. How bad is it? Apparently the Israelites had gotten so far from this that they couldn't even sharpen their own farm tools. This is crushing and, by the way, humiliating. This is what it cost. They could not even sharpen their own tools. It makes you wonder, as, as the, did the Israelite people start showing up in droves to have their tools sharpened? And did it make the Philistines suspicious? Like we wondered about that. that they were like, everybody's getting their axe sharpened this week. Wonder what's going on here. Which, of course, the Philistines would just be like, sweet. Hopefully they're ready for a fight, right? That's what they would be thinking. <laughs> But this is a, listen to this, the charge was two-thirds of a shekel for the plowshares and for the mattocks, and a third of a shekel for sharpening the axes and for setting the goads. Now, again, like I said, don't, don't dig too much into the, the amounts of the shekels or whatever. The Hebrew here, this is kind of a generalized word for it cost money. And so it, digging too much probably would not be that valuable. And even for which tools, I thought about bringing up mattocks and axes and all that kind of stuff. But one, realizing the Hebrew doesn't make it clear. This is, this is a, a good estimate of probably what tools are being talked about. But even then, the axe, what I would have brought, what I call an axe, would have been nothing like what they call an axe. So it wouldn't have been all that valuable. Instead, just recognizing these general Hebrew words for untimes uncertain farm tools. As we, and, and it's this, the, the key is this. None of these tools are going to fare well against a sword and a spear. They're not going to go well. What is the consequence of not having blacksmiths? Verse 22. So on the day of the battle... There was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people with Saul and Jonathan, but Saul and Jonathan, his son, had them. This, this is what is stuck in my brain and in my soul. And what I think our church is uniquely able to do culturally is to recognize this. We don't want to come to the day of battle and realize, oh, look, we've got no weapons. And much worse, we've got no blacksmiths. When entire denominations cave to the idea that the Bible is merely a book of wisdom meant to inspire us, who's going to be left to remind us that our measure of life's success is to love God and to submit to the authority of His Word? Who's still going to be doing that when the blacksmiths are gone? When we realize that Christian marriages are often not superior to secular ones, that would indicate to me we're missing something. There's something that we don't have. When, when we realize, look around and realize that sometimes Christian blacksmiths are not blacksmiths at all. They're just fakers. And they're frauds. And they're teaching stuff as though they have some authority from Scripture, and they don't. And for several years, about the, the Christian books and stuff on marriage were probably worse than nothing. And for us to realize, who's left to teach this? Not only does it feel like sometimes we don't have any weapons, and sometimes it feels like not only do we not have any weapons, but we don't have any blacksmiths. And now sometimes in the therapeutic world, I'll tell you, it feels like we're going to the world and saying, hey, could you help us out a little? Hey, would you sharpen our plows a little? We, we, we really need some help. Could you do us a favor? How humiliating for us to get to that place. When Christians decide that their career path isn't about creating gospel relationships, but just about a career. When we stop being orphans, begging those still inside to come out and meet our real father as though that's a desperate thing for us. And only what we're doing is trying to help people have a more comfortable orphanage experience. Who's going to remind us? 
That's, that's farm tools and badly sharpened ones. When we forget that we're friends eternally and part of a family forever and that all the other relationships are only temporal, what, what do we do then? When the rest, when the day of rest versus the day of distraction comes, this was the one that shocked me in 08. So I, I was <clears throat> unpacking this in 05, 06, and 08 was when I realized I've got to learn about rest. As these devices were coming out, those Blackberries were getting replaced with things even more intrusive and more distracting, and, and there were games better than just like snake and stuff that you could do, and, and that every moment of rest before was now becoming a moment of distraction and activity. And listen, <laughs> anyone who knows me will tell you, I'm not judging, I'm chief of sinners, um, but, the, but recognizing I don't know how to rest, I don't know how to turn anything off, I don't know how to stop, so I need to go find someone who can teach me to do this. And guess what I discovered? No one knew. No one. I started looking at Christian publishing. <coughs> Who's published a book about rest? Well, that guy Swinson had published the book about margin, which was about adding one, subtracting one before you added one. Well, that's good. Not exactly rest, but that's, I guess, a step in the right direction. I had to go back to Puritan writers and ancient rabbis to find valuable conversations about rest. Praise God we had those, but still... So I, I still periodically teach through rest. There's, and oh, by the way, I wasn't the only one to notice this. In 08 and 09, 2010, you start seeing Christian publishers and Christian leaders publishing stuff about rest. Apparently the Spirit had begun to show this to them as well. But I spent a year, Ginger and I spent one year, we said like for a year, let's pick Sunday and make it a day of rest, which means we've got to get everything ready on Saturday for Sunday, especially for a church staff family, and going, what does it look like for us to do this? And we fought like crazy that year because we had no one to guide us. We had no one to call and go like, does this? count? Or is this, is this rest? Or is this work? Because I'm not sure. So we need to go to the store. That's work. Can't go to the store on Sunday. Okay. What if I want to go to the store though? What if it's for something fun? Well, I don't, I don't know. I guess go. Because we don't. So, so you go and then you call like, hey, while I'm here, you think I can get milk? Well, I don't know. No. I mean, that's, is that something you have to do or not have to do? I'm telling you, we had these conversations constantly. And what we needed was a rabbi, someone, a pastor, a leader, a teacher, a book would have been nice, a podcast, anything that says, here's what rest looks like. And here's how you apply these teachings. And so we, had to, we were making it up as we were going and, and other families we were talking to about it. And this is so hard. How will we be found again, once again? How do we keep getting caught on the day of battle with farm implements? How does this keep happening to us? Think of how close some of you, like me, you grew up in a church, but as a church that didn't teach discipleship. I feel like we came this close as a church in the 80s and 90s to kind of an American church missing discipleship. It was nearly kind of taken off the plate for a while. What would have happened? God forbid that this happens, that we don't have a spear or a sword on the day of battle. We keep showing up to battlefields with farm tools, and in humiliation, then we have to ask for a favor from our worldly enemies. Would you please pay, could, could, I, could I please pay you for a slight improvement over my terrible situation? Man, the Philistines were plundering the Hebrew people before the paddle even began. How do we get there? It's too late to start training blacksmiths on the day of battle. I, I think this is a church that, that, ha, that gets this, that many, many people in this church get this. And saying, how do we raise up a new generation of people, a new generation, not just of weapons, not just of tools, but of blacksmiths? By the way, what does it say that Saul and Jonathan only had swords? 
I don't know, Paul and I were talking about that this week. It, it's, it's, you know, we, as we've studied Saul, it's hard to give Saul the benefit of the doubt in places, and yet you want to because you feel sorry for him at the same time, and you want to give him credit for anything you can. Was, was this Saul, was the only one smart enough that he knew battles were coming, so he got a sword made at some point, or found one, or bought one? And then not only was he wise enough to be prepared for that day, but he was also wise enough to prepare his son for that day? I hope that's what it is. Or is it that in the entire nation, in the, all the museums, they only found two swords, and it's like, well, hand them over. Give them to the royalty. We're now royals, so we're the ones who get the best stuff. So pass up the, one, the two swords we did find come to us. I don't know. I'd like for it to be the first one. Mainly what I would say is, if it's the first one, we need to learn from that. Are we being equipped, and are we equipping the next generation? And number two, if it's the second one, we need to learn from that. We need to make sure that we're prepared to, to share in what we've learning and what we're growing. It's hard to know. Verse 23, and the garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass of Michmash. So here we are. The Philistines are now encamped where Saul was encamped. They are right here in the backyard of Israel. And they're going to start sending out raiding parties to the nearby villages and the nearby towns. It's a nightmare. The, village, the, the Vikings have set up a massive army in the middle of your country, and now they've got to eat. So where are they going to get food? Well, I'll tell you, they're going to get food from your pantries where they're going to get food. They're going to come and take that everything from you, and, and there's, there's no weapons, there's no soldiers, there's no nothing. This is a bad moment. The people of Israel are just in hiding here in the middle of their own country. Now, if you read ahead to the next chapters, and I hope you will, I want you to know that it's my personal opinion, um, and not only my personal opinion, this comes from many of the commentaries and stuff, but it's my personal opinion that, that the next few chapters especially are less a chronological order, a history of Israel in this time period, and more interspersed and overlapping accounts of the war with the Philistines, of the fall of the house of Saul, spoiler alert, and with the rise of the house of David. If you try to read them as systematic and, and, and neatly organized, I think you're going to get confused. I think we're going to get confused regardless in some places, but that's, it'll, it'll, this will help us begin to unpack it. We'll do our best. I promise, uh, as we've been doing, it's my prayer and in many ways my purpose in life, and I don't think this is special to me, I think it's just something God drew my attention to that day in 1 Samuel 13, a decade and a half ago. I think it should be the purpose of the local church and the purpose of each of us as leaders and ministers that we make sure that never again on the day of battle is there a shortage of swords and spears. And the way I believe in doing that is by making sure there's never a shortage of blacksmiths. In a Christian church, that means discipleship. It means equipping and training. It means leading and serving. It means investing in a new generation of believers so that whatever they face, that we've got children over there who are future blacksmiths and they need to get the right basics in place now. We are digging wells when we're not thirsty. When the day comes and those children are the ones leading us into the fray, will be well prepared and well led. I want you to know, all of you, how to study scripture and how to teach it to others. I love getting to model the joy and awesomeness of unpacking his word. Uh, recently, Paul and I were stopped on a Sunday morning by a gentleman. I, don't, I didn't catch who it was. Again, on Sunday morning, my brain is not always uh, able to hold on to things. Some of you have figured out the hard way. 
But he stopped us and was like, I just want to let you guys know the way you guys have been teaching have really, has really given me a passion for studying Scripture on my own. And I've been loving finding new materials and finding new things and just digging into it myself. That, that is the best. Um, I want to model the, the joy. I want to model that and for people to see that. I love the idea, I've said many, many times, the power of discipleship. You talk about digging wells um, when you're not thirsty. Um, I, I met Paul when you were like 19. Like 19 is when I started investing in Paul. And uh, man, who would have thought years later? And so many of these guys that, that I've known them for so long and investing in them at that point. And then like, now here we are decades later, like several decades later, um, <laughs> working together and, and serving together. What, what a great thing. And listen, these people know, and you guys know, I am full of flaws, full and overflowing with flaws. I find that I fixate when I know others have experienced pain because of me, and it's easy for me to get distracted by things even less important than that. Like everyone else, because of my insecurities, I think everyone does this, I do. I latch on to those moments when someone who, get, who knows my flaws and sees them and under, but who still understands me, who gets me. Even if I'm off base, they at least get why I'm off base. Just being understood is such a powerful thing. I experience this most often, of course, with Ginger, my wife, that she gets me and loves me anyway. She knows me well with all my flaws and still decides to love me anyway. Um, and I always want to be improving and growing like our friendship should be and all of those. And my kids are the other next place. They, they see me and they know me, and, and yet they still get me a lot of times. Recently, I want to give you an example connected to this that spoke to me that was being understood by one of the men who I've asked to be an over-shepherd in my life is uh, Dr., uh, Dr. Bob, Bob Livesay, and he's, he was here in the first service. And, uh, and so I meet with Dr. Bob um, pretty regularly, and we talk about life and stuff. And, and as Dr. Bob was seeing me get excited about this concept, I don't know, several months ago, um, he asked me if I knew who Eldad and Medad were. And I just got to tell you, when you meet with someone like Dr. Bob, everything is a little bit of a Bible trivia conversation, whether you like it or not. Um, because to him, it's not Bible trivia. He just knows all of it. And so, and I was like, I, I wish I could answer yes to that. But um, you got me again. I do not know who Eldad and Medad are. So he showed this to me in, in the scripture, Numbers 11, 26 through 29. Here we go. Now, two men remained in the camp, one named Eldad and the other named Medad. What great names the Bible has. And the Spirit rested on them. They were among those registered, but they had not gone out to the tent. So, and so they prophesied in the camp. And a young man ran and told Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. Uh, little tattletale. And, and Joshua, the son of Nun, the assistant of Moses from his youth, said, My Lord Moses, stop them. And Moses said to him, are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would have put his spirit on them. And, and, and Bob said, you know, when I read that passage, I think of you, Chris. And I was like, someone gets me. And in a great moment, this is from 1 Samuel 13. This is what I mean. I don't, I don't see blacksmithing as some special thing that I have to protect to protect my kind of role or whatever in the church. I want all of you to be blacksmiths. I want all of you to be equipping new blacksmiths. The more the merrier. When we live out like this, when we live that out, I want everyone to be able to dig and learn and to proclaim him like prophets. I know this means that many of you who I love best are going to leave. 
God's going to call you. When you got this kind of stuff going on and you learn how to be a blacksmith, God may call you to a total other place in the world to be a blacksmith. Over the next few weeks, we've got a couple of families who we're going to be launching like that. And it's heartbreaking and painful. And yet at the same time, man, it's good. It's the best. Worse, sometimes when you become a blacksmith on your own, you may disagree with me about how to blacksmith something, right? That's always painful. Yikes. And yet it's often good, better. We can all hold fast to this. This is, this is our hope, ladies and gentlemen of the church. This, there will come a day when we will no longer have wars like this. There will come a day when we no longer need these weapons. There will come a day when evangelism, I assume, is over. There will come a day when we're not being discipled by one another, but we're literally sitting at our master's feet, discipled directly by him. What a great day that will be. I can't wait for that day. In a time of broken trust and fallen friends and grief and loss. In a time when we watch our nation stumbling, at, if we're being nice about it, stumbling and struggling. When someday instead of making swords into plowshares, we're going to get to make plowshares. No. Instead of making swords from plowshares, we're going to make plowshares from swords. But church, that time is not yet here. I believe it's coming soon, but not yet. If you will stand and pray with me. Father, during this time of blacksmithing, when the fire is hot and the anvil is hard, Lord, I pray we will submit ourselves readily to be smithed by you, to be forged by you, to be shaped by you, to be heated and molded. Lord, we thank you for those moments when we are understood and people see us and they know us and they love us anyway. That's like the quenching coolness of your water, and then it's back on the anvil. And Lord, I thank you that in the power of the picture of your gospel and living according to you, we are the metal that is also can be the blacksmith under you, the ultimate blacksmith. We can be the sheep that is also the shepherd under you, the master shepherd. Lord, we are the servants who are also the royalty under you, the king of the universe. And Lord, I pray we will learn to integrate all of these into our lives, illuminated by the power of your spirit, inspired by the power of your word, your son. Lord, that faithfully we're relying on you with perfect knowledge and power in all of that. I pray you would accomplish this thing in your world and in your people. We do so in your son's name. Amen. As we have our time of invitation, I hope you'll be praying. You may need to come down here to pray. There's a barrier between you and living this out. Come here and confess it and leave it here. If you need to pray with somebody, there'll be people over in the corner who would love to pray with you, or we can up here as well, happy to do so. If you've never heard of this Savior, and you, you're just now realizing that the rest of us are just orphans who are standing outside with the Father saying, come on out, please join us. And we're not for, that's not from a position of judgment. It's desperate hope for you to find the fullness of life too. As confused as little kids as we can be. And whatever that is, if you've been through our welcome home process, you've talked to Lance and others, and you're ready to join our dysfunctional family, we'd love for you to do that as well this morning. If you will, I'm going to read this and then hand it over to Colson to, um, to lead us in this time of invitation. Isaiah 2 says, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord.
to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, and he shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. The very words of God. 